Okay, can you all hear me? Yeah, everyone can hear me, wonderful. If you want to open up your Bibles, please, to the Gospel of Mark and chapter 12. Mark 12, 28 to 34. 28 to 34. I'm going to put the verse up on the screen as well for you. We're going to read from the English Standard Version. Let's pray as we come to the word of the Lord, shall we? Father God, we thank you that you have not left us without guidance in this world. And as the Lord Jesus himself promised, behold, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. We know that that word was fulfilled in the Holy Spirit coming. And now we come to the word that the Holy Spirit has left for us. The word of God. Standing true throughout generation to generation, never changing, never diminishing in its power or effect, but standing as a witness for all time to mankind of the will of Yahweh. We pray now that we would have reverence as we come to hear this word. Though we may be very familiar with this passage of scripture, we pray, Lord, that that familiarity would not come between us and an encounter with the God that this speaks about. We pray, Lord God, that you would put in us a fresh hunger to know you more today, a childlike spirit in each of us to learn as we hear the word of God. We pray this in the name of the Lord. Amen. Let's read together. One of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, You're right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one, and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and all the understanding and with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself, is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of heaven. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. To remind you, the place that we find Jesus in here is in Jerusalem. Jesus is in Jerusalem in the run-up to the beginning of the Passover festival. And he has been in the temple disputing with first the Sanhedrin. These were all the most important and most knowledgeable people in the house of Israel at this time. He has been disputing with them. They came to him to try and pick fault with him. If you remember, he then told a parable. The parable of the 
unjust stewards. Do you remember that? The Sanhedrin didn't like that parable very much, if you remember. They went away. Enter scene, the Pharisees and the Herodians. The Pharisees and the Herodians, an unlikely duo, came together, were sent by the Pharisees to dispute with Jesus. They begin questioning him about his authority. What authority do you have to be telling us what to do? And after they depart, we then have the Sadducees come. And this is what we studied last time out, was the Sadducees, who did not believe in the resurrection, they came and tried to make mockery of the doctrine of resurrection. And Jesus, of course, dealt with them as well. And now, at long last, we have a scribe approaching. We read that one of the scribes came up and had heard Jesus disputing with the Sanhedrin and with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He'd been listening. We read that he's come along and he has a question for Jesus. How many of you have questions for Jesus? The scribe comes along and we read that he asks Jesus this question concerning the greatest commandment. Now a scribe, if you don't already know, was somebody that was highly trained in all aspects of Mosaic law, of the Old Testament scriptures. This was, in effect, a biblical scholar. That's what a scribe was. And the scribe comes, and we must, by Mark's account, understand that the scribe is coming with an, a, real, a real question. There's no veiled intention, as far as we can tell in Mark's account, to try and pick holes in Jesus, but rather he wants to know the answer, genuinely wants to know the answer to this question. And in the original language, what he literally asks Jesus is, which commandment is first? Which commandment is first of all? Now in the ESV and the NIV translations, it's rendered as which is the most important commandment of all. And that really gets to the meaning of what this scribe was asking. He wasn't asking which was the first commandment chronologically, like which commandment did God command first, but he's asking which is the most important of all of them. Now that's interesting, isn't it? Because I think in our day and age, we tend to think of all commandments kind of being equal. We think as well, often you'll hear it said, all sin is equal in the eyes of God. But actually, in much Jewish thought, there was an understanding that some commandments were weightier than others. And that some sins were more egregious than others. And so in a sense, although all sin is capable of damning somebody for eternity without grace from Jesus Christ, not all sin is equal. Some sins are more egregious than others, and some commandments are weightier than others. And Jesus answers the scribe by quoting from the Old Testament. He quotes from a passage in Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 and 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord, and that's capitalized Lord, so that's Yahweh, or the, the Tetragrammaton, we, 
in Hebrew, we, we, don't, we don't even pronounce those letters. We say Adonai. We just use the vowels underneath the four letters. The Lord, Yahweh is our God. The Lord is one. You shall love Yahweh your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Now that's called, how many of you know what that passage is called? What's it called? The Shema. That's right, the Shema. Shema literally just means to hear. It's, it's kind of like hark or listen, hear. It's a command, Shema. And the Shema was a creed, effectively. It was a creed, a theological, doxological, worshipful creed that was recited morning and evening by faithful Jews. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Shema Yisrael, Adonai, Adonai Elohim, Eloheinu, sorry, Echad. Okay, so the Lord our God is one. Okay, and that was related, sorry, that was recited morning and evening. And what was the greatest commandment in the Shema? It was what? It was love. Love. You shall love Yahweh, your God. Today we're going to talk about how this commandment to love our God is still the great commandment even for us here in the 21st century. Love is the greatest commandment. It is the highest virtue that we're capable of as human beings is to love. And that's what's ultimately required of us by God. And not just us, those who come to church on Sundays. But actually this commandment is the greatest in another sense. It's the greatest in its application. It's applicable to all humankind. Whether you're born here or whether you're born in Timbuktu, this command applies to you. All humanity is commanded to love the true God who does exist with all their heart, mind and soul. Even though they may be raised in a different tradition, this commandment is applicable to all. Now, what's interesting about this command in the day and age that we live in is that the world actually has no problem with the subject of love. Love is a virtue that is highly valued and cherished by the world that we live in, not just by Christians, but by all. Love is something that people love. They love to speak about it. They love to profess that they do it. One of the greatest slogans of our day and age is, love is love. You heard that one. Love is something that the world loves. But crucially, what the world does is it turns this commandment on its head. The world turns this commandment to make it that we ought to love ourselves first, then our neighbor, and then it forgets about God. <laughs> it turns the commandment on its head. And often the criticism that's leveled against people like you as Christians is, you as a Christian, you're commanded to love people, aren't you? Yes. Well, you're not very good at it, are you? Because you don't love people. You don't love people who think differently than you about lifestyle choices, about romantic relationships, about 
who we may choose to love, whatever gender they might be, you don't like that, do you? Well, well, you're a bigot. You're unloving, you're hateful. You don't love everybody. Stop being such a liar. Stop being such a hypocrite. Now, I'd be the first to put my hand up and say, I'm a hypocrite. I'm a hypocrite because, in a sense, I preach things that I'm never capable of fully living up to. So in that sense, I'm a hypocrite. I don't try and go out and lie, but I'm not capable of fully loving the Lord with all my heart, mind, soul every day. But at the same time, we have to understand that we're not permitted by Scripture to place our neighbor above God. I and you are not permitted by Scripture to forego our love to God in order to make our neighbor feel more loved. Does this make sense? You see, there's this mixed up idea in the world that in order to love somebody, I have to agree with everything that they do. Brothers, sisters, I don't even agree with everything that I do. But I keep feeding myself too much, very often. But I still love myself. You don't need to agree with everything that somebody does in order to love them. Listen, God the Father didn't agree with everything you did. That's why he sent Jesus. So perfect love does not require complete agreement with behavioral practices. Amen? Let's not get caught up and mixed up in that worldview. Just because we disagree with a practice does not mean that we hate the individual. We're not permitted to hate God in order to make our neighbor feel more loved. Now, there are certain things in God's word, in his revealed scriptures, that he clearly calls sinful. And we're not permitted to encourage our neighbor to live in lifestyles that God will judge. We're not permitted to condone and even celebrate. That's what we're being asked to do now, is not just to be okay with, but to celebrate those things that God calls an abomination. We're not permitted to do that in order to try and make our neighbor, who we do love, feel more loved. It doesn't mean we should be an idiot, on the other hand. It doesn't mean we should be vindictive. It doesn't mean we should be overly, well, we shouldn't be judgmental. And often we fall at that hurdle, don't we? But it, it does mean we're not allowed to violate God's word in order to make somebody feel more loved. Why is that the case? Well, listen, I, I'm married. I'm married. I've been married for 14 years, is it now? 15 years? It's, it's just going so fast. I'm losing count of years. But I've been married a long time. And I love my wife. And I know that in that relationship, there are certain things I'm not allowed to do. I know that there are certain things that I, I choose not to do because I love my wife. So, for example, I, I don't have long conversations with ladies in WhatsApp or Messenger because that isn't something that honors my wife. That's not loving her, is it? It may make this other individual feel nice but it's actually choosing to not love my wife. Are you getting the analogy? Is that, is that making sense? So 
if I doll down God's word and say, that stuff doesn't really matter, that's, it's from a long time ago, it's not applicable now in this day and age, so we're just going to pretend that stuff's not there, and we're just going to say it's all about love. God is love, therefore God is accepting of all things, all practices, whatever they are, we just got to love. Well, guess what? I'm actually hating God. I'm hating God. I'm actively choosing to hate God by ignoring his word and I'm placing man above him in the pyramid of love where the Shema says, who do we love first? Love Yahweh, your God, with all your heart, mind, soul, strength. And then love your neighbor as yourself. You see the order is turned upside down. We must remember what comes first. We must love the Lord, Yahweh, our God. Now it's interesting, isn't it? that Jesus quotes from the Old Testament. He quotes the Shema. Now, of course, in the Shema, in the Hebrew, it uses that four-letter word we call Yahweh, right? Or Jehovah. It's actually God's name. It's like how I'm Graham, God is Yahweh. Like you're Darren, he's Yahweh, okay? That's his actual name. It uses that divine name in the Shema. But you know in the Greek what it says? Hokurios, the Lord. Kurios. Isn't that interesting? How Jesus is called in the New Testament, kurios, Lord. So when we read that in the New Testament, kurios, we should think Yahweh. Isn't that interesting? Jesus is Lord. That's not just making a statement about his authority. That's making a statement about his divinity. We're not permitted to love our neighbor above God. And the commandment itself, I do not want you to miss this, the commandment to love the Lord your God begins with theology. It begins with theology. I talk to many Christians these days, I don't want theology, I'm not interested in doctrine, I just want Jesus, I just want to love Jesus. How do you know who Jesus is if you don't have theology? How do you know which Jesus to love if you don't have doctrine? The Muslims have a Jesus. The Hindus have a Jesus of of sorts. The New Ages have a Jesus. The question is, is it the Jesus of the Bible? Is it the Jesus who will come back in judgment one day? Or is it a Jesus made up in a figment of our own imagination? A Jesus who just agrees with everything that we do and think and say? A Jesus who fits in nicely with culture? He's got all the cool ideas. He holds all the, the coolest, most woke perspectives on things. Well, is that really the Jesus of the Bible? That's what I would ask. Is that a Jesus who can save? That's the key question. That's why I get specific about things like this. Because a false Jesus can't save anyone from sin, can he? He might be all sweetness and light. He might be popular to other people. But if he can't save from sin, then he's going to damn you to hell. We need to worship the true Jesus. The true God who does exist. We need to know him. And I love that the Shema spells his name out. Hero Israel, Yahweh, our God. Our God. We're using his name and we're saying something about him. He is one. He is one. It's a point of theology that then ends up being doxology. It ends up being worship. I just want to say this. All theology, which is what? What's theology? Anybody know? Thank you. The study of God. The study of God. All theology, what we study and know about God, is to lead to doxology. How many of you know what doxology is? Worship. It comes from doxa, which means glory. 
glory. It's to end up in glory of God. Please, brothers and sisters, don't be scared of doctrine. Don't be scared of theology. It's fuel for your worship. It's fuel for your fire. And that's what we're talking about here today is fire for God, love for God, worship of God. Please don't avoid theology. Feed your soul with it. You know, there's a story of uh, R.C. Sproul. He was a, a lecturer in college and he remembers one day a couple coming into his classroom as he was beginning to teach and it was a couple, Rebecca and John were their names and they came in and Rebecca was looking very happy and she was flashing her wrist around and on her hand was a new ring and R.C. Sproul asked her, Rebecca, is that an engagement ring that I see? She said, yes, it is. I'm engaged to be married. And he said, could I ask, is it to John? And she said, yes, it's to John. And if you watch any R.C. Sproul, I would have hated to have this man as a teacher. But he embarrassed her. He put her on the spot and he said, can I ask you, Rebecca, why John? Why John? She, she was stumped. She was embarrassed. She flushed a little bit. She answered him. She said, well, he's just so smart. He's so intelligent. And R.C. Sproul paused and he said, well, Rebecca, consider Frank. Frank's intelligent, isn't he? And there's a young man, Frank, at the back of the classroom, and R.C. says, in fact, I think Frank outscored John in the recent assessments. Why not Frank, Rebecca? She grew more red and said, well, John's just so athletic. And R.C. Sproul said, well, that's, that's true. That's a good point. You know, he's on the basketball team. He starts every week. But as I remember, John's a starter, and he outscores John. So why John and not Frank? And at this point, she began to become a bit emotional and felt she was being interrogated. But after a while, she just said, well, John is John. That's why I love him. John is my John. And that is how we're to love God. Because he is God. Not just for what he can give us, what he can get for us, not just because of his attributes, his love, his holiness, his power, but simply because he is Yahweh. And this passage tells us to love the Lord our God with all of our heart. Love him with all of our heart. The Greek word there in that passage is cardia. That's where we get the medical phrase cardiology from. So Greek is cardia, but the Hebrew word for heart, and I think that's important because all of these men in this particular passage were Hebrew. The Hebrew word is lev. Can you say lev? And in Jewish thought, the heart was different than the way we conceive of it today. You know, many of us, when we think about the word heart, what, what comes up in your mind? When I ask you, how's your heart? You know, I always puke a little bit in my mouth when people ask me that question. Because what, what it conjures up in my mind is emotions, like soft, feely things that are kind of gross to talk about. But that's my westernness. That's my Greekness, okay? Actually, in the Hebrew sense, the heart was the inner you. It was the seat of your emotions, yes, but the seat of your understanding. The seat of your 
consciousness, the seat of your desires, all of your desires. That was what they meant by heart. It was a much bigger thing than we think of it now. Now we kind of divide heart and head, don't we? We say things like head v's heart. Are you a head-led person or are you a heart-led person? That dichotomy didn't exist in Hebrew thought. That's why in the Shema there's no mention of the mind. Did you notice that? That when Jesus says it, he adds mind, dianoia in the Greek. Well, that's because in the Hebrew sense, mind was included in heart. It was all one and the same thing. Remember that the next time somebody asks you if you're a head or a heart person, you say both. Both of necessity because I have a heart. Okay? But by the time Jesus said this, this idea of the brain being the locus of the mind, that's why I think Jesus mentions brain, or mind, sorry, not brain, separately. And that's how we are today. We divide the two, but the Hebrews didn't. And so we're commanded to love God with all of our heart. You know, there are many, there are many today that struggle with this. There's an obedience there. There's an obedience to the commands of God in terms of trying to live a life that honors Him, abstaining from sins, going to church, reading a Bible. But inwardly, there is a lack of fire. There's a lack of love of the God that you study. Jesus talks about this in John 4 when he speaks to the Samaritan woman at the well. He says, the true worshippers will worship God in what? Spirit and truth. Inwardly and according to truth. Not just outwardly. The Ephesian church in Ephesian, sorry, in Revelation 2 was challenged. They had good doctrine. They had good works. They hated false teaching. How many of you know that Jesus actually loves that? When you hate what is false, because it means you love what is true. Brothers, what concerns me, and sisters, what concerns me in the church today is that there is not enough hatred for false doctrine. Because it tells me something else. It tells me there's not enough love for true doctrine. If we don't hate what is false, we do not really love what is true. Jesus commends the Ephesian church for calling out false apostles. He commends them for hating the false teachings of a certain group called the Nicolaitans. But he warns them and rebukes them for forsaking their first love. You've forsaken the love that you had at first. Repent and do the works you did at first. Brothers and sisters, examine yourselves Maybe some of us have allowed the fire to grow dim. Maybe we have allowed the external measures of our faith to continue on. We've kept going to church. We've kept up with our Bible reading plan. But all the while, inwardly, the fire's been growing dimmer and dimmer and dimmer. We must love the Lord our God with all of our hearts, with the inward man, with the soul. Before I move on to the soul, I just want to read this, Proverbs 4.23. Keep your heart with all diligence, or in the New King James, guard your heart. Why? Why guard your heart? Why guard the inner man? For out of it flow 
the issues of life. What that tells me is that ultimately I'm not in control of the outflow of my life. It's naturally going to flow out of whatever the condition of my heart is. So listen, if I am full up of God, if I am loving Him with all that I am internally, it's naturally going to flow out into my relationships, it's going to flow out into my work, the way that I see my work. It's naturally going to come out of me, even with strangers. They're going to sense something about what matters to me. It's the same. My dad mentioned the football earlier. If somebody loves a football team or a baseball team or whatever team, you're going to know about it sooner or later, aren't you? It just flows out of them. They want to talk about it. They want to tell you about it. The same is true of God. When we love him and we're full up of him internally, Charles Spurgeon said that the heart is like a reservoir. It's like a reservoir. Out of it flow streams of life. When you're full up of God, guess what flows out of you? The things of God. He says, love the Lord your God with all your soul. And here again, the Greek preposition, when we say love the Lord your God with all of your soul, actually, the, the Greek preposition isn't with. It's not actually with, it's out of, it's ex. Okay? So what's really being said is, love the Lord your God out of all your heart, out of all your soul. So it's like your heart and soul are full up with love for God and it's pouring out. Love him with all of your soul, that's psyche in the Greek. Love him with all your psyche or nephesh in the Hebrew, which I think is maybe more poignant here. Nephesh meant, does anybody know who's clever, who's read a concordance before? Nefesh means life. Love him with all your life. So your whole life is leaning in towards God, leaning in towards love of him. And what's interesting is that word nefesh can also mean throat or neck. Now it doesn't mean that here, but I do think that's kind of interesting. Because what's located in your throat? Your voice box. Your voice box. And when our soul is full up of something, we speak about it. It's not an effort. We speak about that thing because we love that thing. If I was to ask one of your friends for a summary of what you're all about, what you live for, what you're passionate for, what would they say? What would they say? Would God be somewhere in that list? How high would he be? It's something to think about. What do we speak about regularly? That will tell us what our soul truly loves, won't it? We're to love him with all of our mind. Dianoia, mind. Now this again is connected to what I've already said, and I don't want to labor this point too hard, but this is why, brothers and sisters, in this church, we believe that theology is for all, not just for pastors, but for all. Good, sound doctrine is there for us all to worship God. That's why we use creeds. That's why we use confessions. That's why we try to go verse by verse as much as we can because we believe theology is fuel for worship. It's fuel for worship. And when a Christian is reading something about doctrine, about God, guess who's helping understand it for us? We have a helper. We have a paraclete. We have the Holy Spirit helping us to understand what's being told to us about God. So I don't worry about teaching you all about doctrines concerning God. 
I don't dumb things down. Why? Because I trust the Holy Spirit to help you to understand those things as he's promised that he will do. Because we're commanded to love him with all of our mind. So when we study the Bible, when we read theology, it's actually loving God. It's actually a form of worship. What are we thinking about when we think about maybe Christians that don't ever open a Bible? There are Christians in the world that don't have access to Bibles. But we here in the West, we've got apps, we've got the internet, we've got Bible Gateway, we've got the Bible app, we've probably got four or five paper Bibles at home. What are we to think about a Western Christian who never opens a Bible? I don't think it's a good look. I don't think it speaks very well of the love that they have for God. To me, it doesn't matter that they show up to church, put their hands up and cry every Sunday. If they never open a Bible, I'm questioning whether the love is really there. Because we're to know our God. I remember when I first started dating Becca, we'd go out for meals. I wanted to know everything about her. I wanted to know the most banal details about her life because I was interested, because I loved her. I thought she was brilliant. Still do. But I wanted to know facts about her. I didn't want to remain ignorant. I wasn't content to just live in ignorance about what kind of woman this was. I wanted to know all the details. How many of you can relate to that? A thirst for knowledge. You know, the Bible is something that we call in theology, it's perspicuous. That means it's understandable. I worry that in this day and age, many people have got the idea that, oh, well, people disagree about the Bible. They disagree about what it means. Therefore, I won't bother looking into it. Because if everybody disagrees, that means it can't really speak clearly about anything. Well, <laughs> that is true. There are many bright Christians that think differently about certain texts, but that should not put us off from studying it for ourselves from mining the scriptures for gold. And finally, we're to love God with all of our strength, with all of our resource, with everything that we've got. Not giving up when things get tough. Not submitting to our feelings and our carnality. I don't feel like going to church today, God. And I'm the pastor. Sometimes I wake up and feel like that. We're in a fight with the flesh and the devil and the world, aren't we? It's a threefold battle. You're not going to be able to live up and fight that without strength, without some kind of inner fortitude. We're to love God with all of that strength. Now, over lockdown, the many lockdowns, I kind of got out of rhythm with keeping my body strong and keeping myself fit. And so I got out of shape quite badly. And at the back end of last year, a friend and I, we said, you know, we're both dads, we both let ourselves go a bit, so we need to get back on top of this. So we're going to try and just go to the gym. We, he's got a gym in his back garden, bless him. So we, we go there, we, we do a couple of sessions, three sessions a week. And to be honest, we didn't see results for a long, long time. We were doing these sessions and it was kind of like, we're not really seeing anything happen. And we got to a point where we sort of got discouraged with that because we weren't seeing these amazing results. We began to kind of train within ourselves 
Have you ever done this before? If you're a runner or you go to gym, you know you can train within yourself. You can do to the point that you know you're capable of. Well, actually, that kind of training doesn't really benefit you anymore. You reach a ceiling, you reach a glass ceiling. What we realized we needed to do was push ourselves. Every time we got in the gym was to go one weight higher, was to do one more rep, to push ourselves to the point of failure. Now, many of us in our walks with God have settled for the glass ceiling that we had 10 years ago. We've settled for the faith that we had 10 years ago. That encounter that we had. That meeting we went to, we felt super blessed. That Bible reading plan that you know, we've had and it's been tried and tested for many years, but we never push ourselves. We live within our own strength. Is it time to train to failure in your Christian walk? Is it time to push yourself again? Are you truly living for God with all of your strength? Or is some of that strength being diver- diverted elsewhere? Because let's be honest. Let's be honest about this. I know that if I'm needing to get up early in the morning to eat a big fat English breakfast and have a lovely cup of coffee, guess what? I've got strength for that. Suddenly, out of nowhere, this visceral power comes from within me. I get up out of bed and I get downstairs or get to that restaurant where that full English is being served. Darren knows this is true. I get to that restaurant where the breakfast is being served and where that bottomless coffee is. Weirdly, I've got strength for that. But when I need to get to church for 8.30am to set the PA up, sometimes I'm wavering. Why? Because somewhere within me, my strength is slightly divided. You can't give your all to God if you're giving your all to something else. You can't give your all to God if you're giving your all to your job. You can't give your all to God if you've already given your all to your family. I think we get it mixed up in the West here. We think it comes family, God, self. No, it's God, family, self. God comes first. And if we love God and we do it with all of our heart, soul, strength, mind, then we will love our neighbor well as well. But if we miss the first bit out, we won't get the second bit right either. It's one of the problems, I think, is that we try and flip this upside down. We're thinking about how can I love my neighbor better and we forget to love God first. And I think we have to remember something. Augustine said this and I think it's true. We have to remember that when we're being asked to love God and we're not being asked, we're actually being commanded to love God. Did you catch that? What's the greatest commandment? You're commanded to love God. It's not a suggestion. It's not an invite. It's a command. And sometimes we think, that's kind of weird, because if somebody came up to me and commanded me to love them, that would pop a red flag up in my mind immediately. That person is a narcissist. I'm out of here. But listen, God's ways are not our ways. He's not a human. He's God. So when he commands you to love him with all that you are, He's actually commanding you to do the very thing that's going to bless you the most. He's commanding you to do something that is for your own good. Ultimately, we love him for his glory, not for our own good. But Augustine said this, the virtue of love and loving God consists in nothing else but loving what is worthy of love. It is prudent to choose to love God. 
It's wisdom to choose to love God. It is smart thinking to choose to love God with all that we are. It's the most sensible thing that anybody can do. I want to finish on this and just say that all of this is true. Everything that I've said is is absolutely true. And I want for it to lay on your soul a little bit this week. Maybe some of you have felt a little bit challenged by this. Maybe feel like I'm kind of pointing fingers. I'm not intending to do that. What I am intending to do is leave a challenge out there for us all to think about this and where our resources really do go. But on the other hand, it would be remiss of me not to end by saying that this commandment on one hand is a great blessing to us and a guide for our life. On the other hand, it's prudent to notice that you are not capable of fulfilling this commandment. You haven't fulfilled this commandment for one day of your life. And you will never this side of glory. You'll improve. But not for one day have you consistently loved God with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind, and all of your strength. We break it every day. And I think this commandment in many ways is one that pulls me into the grace of God more than the whole of the Ten Commandments. Because people read the Ten Commandments and say, well, I've never killed anybody. I've never taken anybody else's wife or husband. I'm good on that. If you ever watch the ladies' chat show, there's a ladies' chat show in America, they talk through these issues. Oh, I'm good on that. I never killed anybody. I never did this. It's easy to build up pride with some of the commandments until you get a bit lower down them. But this commandment leaves no wriggle room. Nobody can truthfully say that they fulfilled this every day of their lives. No one. This one presses on my soul more than any other. And that's what pushes me into the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because if I haven't fulfilled this commandment, guess what? I'm in sin. Sin is failure to fulfill God's law. It's not just the wicked stuff you do. It's your failure to do the good stuff that God does command. And we're all guilty of falling short of what God has commanded. And therefore, we all stand in need of grace. Because we are incapable of ourselves to do this one thing. Christopher Hitchens is a famous was a famous British atheist. And in his debates, he used to ask the Christian counterpart, he'd say, listen, if you can tell me just one thing, just one moral action that a Christian can do that an atheist can't, I'll concede the debate. Just tell me one moral action that a Christian can do that an atheist can't, I'll walk away. And it used to stump people. But according to Jesus, Hitchens and every atheist can't do the one most important thing that is commanded from the moral law, which is to love God. Love God. And if we're careful to love him first, we will love our neighbour. We will love our neighbour. We will grow in concern for them. We will grow in a desire to support and to help them. Not to coddle them in their sin. Not to pretend that everything's okay. Like cheering lemmings off the edge of a cliff. That's not love. 
but we will grow in concern for them. We will grow in our desire for them, to pray for them, to serve them, to help them. And that's what I want to say, is if we get this, I can't say everything I'd like to about this passage, but I want to leave you with this. If we will consistently get better at the first part of this commandment in loving God, naturally it will flow out of that that we begin to love our neighbour better. And we begin to love ourselves appropriately, as we should. As we should. Let's pray. I'm going to invite the worship team to come back. The scribe, of course, answered Jesus and said, well, have you spoken? God desires this above all sacrifice and burnt offering. He requires and desires love. I want for you to consider today the condition of your heart. Let's just close our eyes even now and just ask the Holy Spirit to come and just begin to minister to each one of us. Maybe just to gently provoke us to rediscover the fire that we had at first. Just like the Ephesian church, maybe we've allowed those coals to grow dim. Let's take a moment now and just ask the Lord to just begin and stoke the flames once again. Now I just feel some of you maybe are feeling like this is a burden, you're tired, life is hard. Life is difficult. I don't have more resource to give to God. These works don't come from a natural place of strength, do they? They don't come from our natural abilities. They come from grace. And so right now I pray that the grace of the Lord be made more abundant to you. More abundant to you to do these things. To follow him with all of your heart. To run after him with all of your strength. To love him with your mind. I pray for the grace of God to come into your life, to fill you with all the energy you need to do this, to seek after him again. I actually want to ask you just to stand with me as we get ready to worship. And just to confess in your heart, you don't need to say it out loud, but just to take a moment and just speak to the Lord. And if you're hungry for him to touch you afresh, if you want to rediscover that first love that you had, why don't you just take a moment now, just with the Lord, and just ask Him in your own words to touch you afresh, to move in your life again. Lord, we thank You that You are a God of grace. And we come to the cross today, this morning, recognizing that, Lord, we fall short at this hurdle. We fall short of this mark. And we thank you that you sent your son Jesus into the world. And he hit every single target. He lived out the great commandment perfectly. And he did so on our behalf. And, Lord, we thank you that when we trust in him, we don't just come near the kingdom like this scribe, but we enter it. Because all the good theology in the world is worthless unless we have Christ. Unless we have the King, we don't have the kingdom. And so, Lord, we pray today that we would apprehend you with our hearts, that we would reach out and grasp Jesus Christ as our Saviour today. And as we do, may we enter into your presence, into your joy, into your kingdom. 
We pray this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And everybody said, Amen. Let's worship together.